Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to an episode of the Audio Signals Podcast with Marco Ciappelli. In this new season, Audio Signals is repositioning its antennas, focusing not just on the stories, but on the storytellers. In our modern hybrid analog digital society, the art of storytelling has never been more vital or displayed such a diverse array of forms. Recognizing this, our conversations will spotlight the narrators, providing a unique exploration into the minds behind the narratives. From authors to podcasters, visual artists to songwriters, and everything in between, we will engage with all who contribute to this extraordinary tapestry of human experience. We are all made of stories after all. Hello, everybody. This is Marco Ciappelli on Audio Signal Podcast. Uh, another episode today, another story to tell. As you know, as I say many times, I believe that we are all made of stories since the beginning of time. And even now in this era of uh, digital communication, still stories and maybe even more nowadays stories are important so this is what we do on audio signal we talk about stories storytelling and storytellers which are the one behind the stories today is going to be a fantastic conversation because uh thomas r wilson is with me and we're going to cover a topic that is maybe a little bit more unique compare with when we talk about a book or we talk about a movie or music or anything. This is about carving stories in a way that can help neurodivergent people to express themselves in a, maybe in a better way, get more involved with other people. But I'm not the expert in this, and I'm more than happy to have Thomas introducing himself and let us know why he does what he do and uh, what is that he does. So, Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, as you stated, my name is Thomas R. Wilson. I go by Thomas. Uh, my work involves public speaking, writing, journalism, uh, storytelling events, and so much more. But really, the core of why I do this work is because I am someone who grew up in the neurodivergent community and the mental health community in the early 90s, 2000s, in a time when I learned at a very young age, there is so much power in stories, but there is so much stigma and um, anger around people who have these needs. And really the core of the work and why I do it is to help bring stories into the world and into communities that are often disconnected from businesses or resources but also really to bring the power of stories, bring that element of what connects human beings in stories and empathy and the power of stories and really focus on making sure that people can also at the same time lift up their voices, lift up their communities and make sure that they get to tell their stories as well. I learned that, as I said, at a very young age that stories are integral to how we live through life, how we communicate with one another. And my events really are just that, to help people build up their voice, not always to lift up my voice, but to help empower people to access their community better. And with that focus of it's all voices should be heard. 
I could not agree more on many of the things that you said. And that's why we're having this conversation. When you asked me to come to the show and I, I heard a little bit of your perspective, I was like, well, we're kind of telling the same story in, in a different way. We both believe in this power of storytelling, which you said many times. But before we talked about what you do and how other people interact with you and can become themselves storyteller, I think we we're all telling story, either we realize that or not. So we may as well be conscious about it and, uh, and, and maybe tell these stories in a better way. But I want to go back to when you discover, you said you discover at a young age that stories were powerful. Was there any, an event in particular that somebody, like a mentor, somebody next to you that made you realize that? Or what was that sparkle? So that really started when I was a young kid. I uh, I've always loved stories. My parents told me that, you know, when I was two years old, I gravitated towards books. And when I was four years old, I loved hearing stories. But I think the real first interaction was with uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Um, I heard that at about five years old. And I realized, like, that was one of the first stories that really clicked in my mind and went, oh, wow, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of power in this. And that set me on my path of wanting to be a writer. But I remember when I was about maybe seven, eight years old, my mother took me to a storyteller festival. And that is one of the major turning points in my life because I got to listen to, I feel like it was over 20 different professional storytellers telling stories like the Iliad and ones from folklore. And when I was at that event, I remember sitting in an audience and hearing the story of the Odyssey. And I remember in that moment, I got up, looked at my mom and just said, this is what I want to do with my life. And the great thing about my mom is she said, okay, well then make it happen. Um, and ever since then, I've learned, especially as a youth trying to advocate for himself, that when a story is told well, when you're going through school and you need help or need ways to communicate with other people, or even as an adult, those memories, those lasting stories become sparks for other people. And mine started at a really young age. But there's so many more uh, stories that I could tell in that, but I hope that kind of answers your question. Yeah, it does. And I love that you mentioned Edgar Allan Poe. It's one of my all-time favorite um, uh, reading, especially thinking when he wrote those kind of stories and how still nowadays provoke those incredible emotion to the reader. I mean, The Raven, it's, it's a definitely a masterpiece. So <laughs> a prop to, to that. I'm, I'm on your side with that. And I love how that was that event was the sparkle for it. So I guess the, the question that, that I want to ask you is this. You are an advocate for using storytelling to, to bring more people, let's say, in telling story, make them realize how important they are. Is it an easy job? Is it easy, and I'm doing air quoting on the radio right now, to, to create that sparkle that, came to you, I'm assuming that's what you want to recreate in other people. Do, do you see it happen often? Is it tough? Uh, 
You, you tell me. So I think that's a great question. I think a lot of people would want to say that it's easy, but I think the hardest part is connecting people to stories that matter to them. And I think especially in an age where a lot of people are kind of disconnecting from books more and more, or we feel like in media, there's a lot of the same stories told. I want to say what I would recommend to any storyteller to make it easier is make sure you know the people who are showing up, make sure you know the age group and who you're working with. Because ultimately, like I, I've been telling stories my entire life. I have a lot of practice in this. But for me as well, it's a difficult job. It takes a lot of preparation. It takes a lot of understanding of story structure. But what can make it so much easier is that old um, adage of knowing your audience and prepping for them. Um, that's like the advice that I give everyone when they're going to tell a story is just know your audience and put in the work that you need to do. I think it's a great advice. When you do talk, of course, you have an audience in front of you. So you know you know who they are. When you talk like this, we're doing radio style without even a video. We don't know who is listening to this. So we, we make an assumption in this case, people that like stories. But maybe they are one minority. Maybe another percentage is another minority. Another percentage is somebody that tells stories. So is there on your opinion a like a book a playbook to write a good story and i'm thinking the way i don't know disney uh, deliver their story or the hero journey uh, you know some classics that you can follow but you then adapt it to your own audience so what what's the trick there by between knowing the rules and bending the rules so I think the um, I think the trick for me at the very least is being able to be a personable or someone who can communicate with people well. Um, I do a lot of practice and a lot of prepping simply to be able to have a conversation flow. But I also what I also do, I think you mentioned Disney and the hero's journey. I spend a lot of time studying different media, um, studying even Disney. I spend a lot of time listening to Dungeons and Dragons audio podcasts and things like that. And I think I think there is, you know, every person that shows up to events going to be a little bit different, going to be, you know, like you said, they want different things and might be a different part of the community. But in my success, what I would say is knowing how to interact with people and knowing how to pick up cues from, you know, if someone seems disinterested, knowing how to adjust to that and being able to prepare to change your story. I, I think you have a great point that everyone is going to want something different. But one of the things I've learned is being adjustable and knowing how to flow with people and knowing how to respond in a positive, productive manner when you're communicating with them is probably the best method that I use. I know many other storytellers might try something else, but that, that's what I recommend, knowing how to really understand people and your story. So do you take, sounds to me that when, when you talk to people, it's easy to, to do, meaning you can read the audience 
you can make changes on the go maybe because you you get that feedback immediately but and you need to be good at doing that <laughs> because if you're just going to over prepare and say this is my story i'm going to stick to that i think that being flexible being able to make changes on the go as you say being spontaneous it's very important but you know not everybody can do that the mm -hmm. other thing is in that situation you are in a in a two channel of communication you 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 are interacting with the audience but when you write a book or when you're like in this case recording a podcast i'm staring at a computer right now and <laughs> in my office um i don't know where people are thinking so i i just try to make an engaging story with you are there any tips that you give you mentioned different media, so let's talk about that maybe. Um, how do you treat different media and still be successful in this, in storytelling? So, um, you know, speaking for myself, I spend a lot of time um, listening and reading great storytellers. Um, but I, I think you mentioned a very key thing. When you're on a podcast, when you're writing a book, it's very hard. And I think... You know, it's, it's, again, such a hard question to answer for every media, but I think being aware of current trends in storytelling, know, knowing how, let me think of how to say this, knowing how to apply what is, you know, not popular in the sense that it's being overdone, but I feel like knowing what you're trying to communicate and knowing that you understand your story well enough, knowing that you understand, like, I've personally worked on a book around a sci-fi world. And one of the things that I did was I very much did a lot of research into modern films and modern uh, aspects. And in that, I really broke down what I felt made the stories great. I looked at the plot. I, like you said, the hero's journey. And I cross-referenced that with, a great deal of other books and other ideas. And I think in the hero's journey in books and podcasts, it's again, going to be a hard thing there. I don't think there's any perfect answer, but I think one of the key things is knowing your story well enough to be confident in it. I think a lot of people are gravitate towards authors who are not just confident in their writing, but they are passionate about what they do. They, they care about what they're putting out into the world. I also think there are a lot of people who gravitate towards books where the syntax and the tone and the, you know, the mission of the book, the story feels like it flows and it's cohesive. Um, and I think the other thing a lot of people gravitate towards too is characters that are, I mean, in a lot of Greek mythology that I've read, heroes are basically demigods, but they are also intrinsically flawed. So I think part of that is also understanding how to mesh what you're trying to create with the human experience. I think, you know, I've read books where people disconnect from stories because people feel too perfect or people too, feel too flawed. And I've seen many TV shows where people have a really great villain that you love to hate, and people actually like that character more than the hero. So 
And a lot of it, I think part of it to summarize is to be confident, to know what you're doing well enough, but to also understand the media around you and how it can help your story to better craft another world. Well, that's that's some serious, interesting tips there. And quite funny that you said that because I, I just published today. So when people listen to our conversation, they can go back and listen a, an interview I did with uh, Gary Braver. He he wrote about ten books. Uh, he's a pretty successful writer in the mystery uh, world. He's done very interesting thing. But he's also a professor of actually retired now professor at a university teaching writing, and he made exactly the point that you made when you do a detective story. For example, he was giving this idea where you tell the story that the detective is trying to resolve. But you also, you have a, another story, which is maybe the inner fight, the inner problem, that personal problem that is also trying to resolve at a human level and maybe and make it more personable. So what you said, it seems to me, it makes a lot of sense and even to professor <laughs> to teach writing. So I, I love that part and it's definitely something to, to think about a lot. Uh, I would like to go into the specific of your target audience when you do the job of involving uh, neurodiverse people to to the table. Can you describe me a little bit of what that story is? Um, how do you even put this community together? I know you work locally a lot. Um, so what do you do when you when you do this kind of event with uh, with this kind of target audience? Um, so um, a lot of the work I do, um, it actually involves reaching out and connecting with organizations. And when I bring people together at events, one of the core aspects is making sure there's a place where people feel safe and they feel like they can access it within a reasonable accommodation. A lot of the people I work with, um, they may drive, they may have alternative services, but one of the main things when I set up a storytelling event or I do Dungeons and Dragons, other things that I do, is making sure that the people first and foremost feel safe, they feel protected. Um, and then when I'm actually working at a space, one of the other things that I work very hard to do while I'm telling my stories is make sure to make the people feel validated. So some of the events I do are very much choose your own adventure kind of book style events where I tell a story and play people can help choose the story. And a lot of my demeanor, a lot of how I behave and how I act is meant to be encouraging, but it's also very sincere. Um, I believe a lot of people in my community and in a lot of other communities have had experiences with events where people um, are not put first. They're put after the setup or after how much it costs to be at the event. And that becomes a very real thing and people kind of disconnect very quickly. So on top of that safety and adding to it, I make sure to put people first. If someone needs an accommodation, I make sure I add that in. Uh, one of the things that I often run into is people feel very apologetic if they're not able to track the story well. 
And one of the main things I do in that moment is look at them with a very look of very sincere look and say, it's okay. I understand that you feel like you need to do this, but uh, you do not. And one of the things I've learned is a sincere level of communication really adds to that element. So I work very hard to keep a tone that is gentle, keep a tone and a pace in my phrasing. And I work with a lot of people who are very high functioning, but like the last little piece, and I'm more than happy to break this down more, is making sure that people on top of being treated well and their needs are met, is creating a respectful space where people don't have to worry about someone cussing them out or judging them or making fun of them. And I make sure at my events that everyone understands that we are gonna treat one another with utmost compassion and empathy. And if there is a problem to come to me first and I will resolve it as the group needs. Well, I, I would like actually for you to go a little bit more into, into this because I have this conversation on my other podcast quite a bit, Redefining Society, where we, in the technology world and cybersecurity, there, there is a lot of groups that are um, oriented in the, in, for the, and made for the inclusion part um, for the neurodiverse. And so I had this conversation, but not being one of them, I, I, I think I have the gift of empathy, but it, it stops to a certain point. It's not like you're experiencing exactly. So if you, if you could try to tell a deeper story about that comfort environment, the comfortable open space environment where people can really start telling their own story without the fear of being judged. I, I, I think the audience will be very much interested in understanding that more. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, to tell it in a realm of the story, one of the things that I do when I show up at a space, like I do an event at a local autism store, it's called the Autism Community Store. Um, and I run those every Saturday in my area. And first thing that I do is I make sure I show up early because that reduces my own stress. But in this event, in this story, in this world that I'm creating, um, one of the things that a lot of these people are looking for, and you might hear a phone call in the background or something. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Um, there is this very real idea that part of putting an empathic space together is making sure that the energy of the space is good. Um, a lot of people like myself who have anxiety, when we walk into a new space, we don't like it when it's super loud or there's a lot of moving pieces or it's crowded. So I help set up in my own way, tables and chairs with enough spaces and enough um, distance between one another. I set up uh, my table, I set up things so that people have the emotional space, but also the, the idea of that bubble. They don't wanna be too close to people all the time. And as people walk in, I make sure to approach them and say hello if they're returning. I show up, greet them with a very genuine smile, but I also am willing to approach their energy level and their 
emotional space with an understanding. I think you, you mentioned, you know, your empathy runs out. I think everyone does. But part of that practice for me is making sure I have the perspective. I have the, the willingness to kind of put myself last if I need to and remove my ego. Um, so I have two people who show up on a regular basis. They are now excited to play Dungeons and Dragons. And when they walk in and they see me, they become very talkative and they're super excited. And sometimes all they need for me is to acknowledge that, not treat them like kids who are being talkative and being problematic, but treating them like people who their point matters and listening with intention, making eye contact, making sure that if they need me to sit down next to them, I ask them and then when they say yes, I can sit down to them, uh, sit down next to them. I can make sure that I'm actively engaging what is exciting for them, but with an energy level that is um, very calm. Um, I've learned that a lot of people, when they come in and they're excited, there's an underlined anxiety. So I do my best to keep my heart rate down, keep myself centered on the moment, and as people roll in, I'll approach each people, each person, and help them get set up in the game. And when we're actually playing, one of the core things that I do is help to make sure that people get active time to communicate and to be heard by the group. Um, so there's a lot more I could really dive into, and this whole process is very complex. But I hope that kind of gives a better understanding on what that setting can be like. It certainly does. And I, I want to thank you for that. I think that what many people would look at something that they consider details for you, it's the actual core of the entire event. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, meaning the details are really, maybe as important, if not more important, than the event itself. Yes, I would also agree making sure that people feel like they matter is just mm -hmm. as much as that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let, let's talk about the choice, and you mentioned uh, the use of Dungeons and Dragons, which, uh, you know, it's a fantasy tabletop that it's a role-playing, I'm assuming a lot of people know what it is, but also it, it's, I believe it started in the early 1970s. So there may be people listening now that they haven't experienced that. And I want you to tell me why a role player game like this, in, it's important for your storytelling session with this community. And also, I guess, why do you think is still relevant something that is done pretty much with your brain and your fantasy without the aid of technology? Seriously, I, in the time of virtual reality, of getting online, multimedia, uh, interactive world, Dangers and Dragons is still very much relevant. So if you can, a little background for those that maybe are not familiar with it and why it's the is a great tool for you to use um so i mean it's yeah it's been around at least since the 70s i believe um i think the core aspect of dungeons and dragons i mean it's 
it went through a major revival. I don't know if you've personally heard of Critical Role or some of the other larger uh, D&D troops where they do like what they call actual plays, which are like very much little plays done in D&D. Mm-hmm. Um, and I may be misspeaking a little bit for the sake of time. But I think the the thing that keeps Dungeons & Dragons alive, no matter how influential a creator is, is human connection. I run a lot of games online, to be honest. But in the work I do, this game is so important because not only does it is it a storytelling service, it's something that helps to uplift voices. I mentioned just a bit ago that I make sure each person is heard. And the actual turn-based system in Dungeons & Dragons is really useful for this because people get a group activity, but they also get one-on-one interaction from time to time with the person telling the story. A lot of the work I do is actually with beginners and helping them learn the game and the way that they need, but I work with experienced players as well. Um, But this game is actually beautifully crafted. I often uh, tell people I think that Dungeons & Dragons and all of the supplements and books that have been made over the years are very much made by people from my community. It's very clear. But um, I often find that, you know, in general, the rules are very complicated. Um, And in my work, what I do is I simplify that. I make it flow. But this game is also incredibly useful for helping develop self-advocacy schools by giving prompts and questions that when I'm working with individuals that are looking for that, they can get ways to interact with the real world. It's a beautiful game that incorporates math and creative processing and creative problem solving, peer-to-peer engagement, Uh, creative fantasy development, backstory development, lore creation, group storytelling. It's a fantastic game for all of these elements. And again, something that would take a long time to fully explain, but in someone who has my skill set and my experience, it's also something that really can help build up community, help make friendships, and actually help with those neurodiverse needs while honoring people and making sure that we don't continue to leave people behind who want to access their community. Um, There's so much that I could say in the very limited time we have, but the core of it is it's a human interaction game that has so many capabilities for adaptation and ideas and just so much more. I love it. I love it. So with the time that we have left, we've talked about how you got involved into loving storytelling, becoming a, a really good, a professional storyteller, how you are involving uh, the diverse com- communities into, into these and how you're dedicated to it. I would like to finish the last few minutes we have with, how, did, with you explaining how stories are actually empowering the neurodiverse community. What what is, let's say, success <laughs> between, you know, hair quotes again for you, and and what is the success of an event, and what you do into 
How how do you quantify that with with it, with your community? I guess it's a, maybe a very dry question, but I think is the best way I can put it. Um, well, thank you. I, I think the success is really each time I show up to an event, um, and you know, people may be bored at the beginning. They may be. Um, if it's Dungeons and Dragons, you know, getting through the dry aspect, or if it's storytelling or public speaking, I think the, and even writing, I think the success really boils down to how it helps people, how it, what I've seen, like you said, and it becomes to the fact that I've seen over 60 people within three months join Dungeons and Dragons. I've seen so many different community members, organizations. And it really is that going down to that human aspect of people feeling excited to come back to a storytelling event or a D&D game to feel like they have been heard and appreciated. Um, and there's so many people that I've worked with over this last short period of time. And I think the success, it is all in seeing people offering spaces and getting to hear people say they had fun. They got to practice skills. I mean, I know one kid who said, uh, who said that you know it was amazing how I was able to take care of everyone and keep the story going. This is maybe like a twelve-year-old who then called me the world's greatest uh, game master, which is a term in Dungeons and Dragons. And for me, the real success is every time I end an event, people being able to being excited to come back to do work to play games, to have fun, to build relationships over and over and over again. And that's happened so many times. Again, we, like we said, we don't have a lot of time, but I really want to say the success is the continued desire that the desire to be around people, to have fun, to connect to their community and to really feel important and own that and not feel like their diagnosis in the actual time of whatever I'm doing is the central thing, but they are. Um, I know that can be a bit vague, but I hope that helps explain it. I think I think it's pretty clear. I, I think you put it beauty, beautifully. So you're the world greatest dungeon master, which is great. I mean, I, I think that's the biggest compliment you can get for someone that has passion for, for this. So props to the 12 years old that told you that. Uh, it must have felt really, really good. Does it ever happen that somebody that has been coming over and over to your event and, and loving it has become a, a storyteller? itself like a dungeon master have you seen maybe other event coming from people that were part of your event and they decided i can do this and i want to do this to to kind of like tell the story and retell the story and then retell the story because i think that's very much one of the power of stories that then it can become your story too I have seen that and it hasn't happened um, as much as I would like, but I believe that my work is only just starting and mm -hmm. I believe in the next several years, there's gonna be more and more people. I really believe that this work needs to be done by more and more and more people. And I found myself at a very niche kind of community that I believe is gonna grow very much and 
at the end of the day, I may not have hurt a lot of people, but I'm hoping through continuing stories, it does happen. It does happen that many more people will be inspired and continue to do this wonderful work. And I hope that this conversation that we had could uh, contribute to that. I hope that people that are listening, maybe they get motivated to do something like this in their area, maybe get in touch with you, get some advice, maybe learn more about what you do. And of course, for that, I will have all the links to your LinkedIn, to your website. I know you have a blog. I will list all of that in the notes. And I would encourage to get in touch with, uh, with Thomas if you are interested in learning more about what he does. And, uh, and, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. As I often say, Thomas, I, I, I don't do what you do, but I do have the same vision in terms of even if one person that listen, it's going to change uh, for, for the best, is going to get motivated to do something uh, about their passion. I think uh, it's a successful episode, even one person. That's what it matters to me. So I want to thank you very much for coming on and I enjoyed this conversation. You are a great storyteller and I would invite you to come back in the future and, uh, and share more story with me as well. I would love that. Thank you so much for this time. Of course. Thank you very much to you and to everybody listening. Stay tuned, subscribe and uh, there'll be many more other stories about stories, storytellers and storytelling. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals with Marco Ciappelli. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit itspmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our shows. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.